It's Midday Magazine for Wednesday, July 12th. I'm Shelby Herbert. On the last Sunday in June, people flocked to Petersburg's northernmost point. They were waiting for the first view of the Hokulea. The twin-hulled voyaging canoe is traversing the waters of Alaska's Inside Passage during the first month of its four-year Moananui-Akaya voyage. KFSK's Hannah Flora reports. Dozens of people crowd the guardrail along Hungry Point. On the beach, a fireman waits to light a stack of gasoline-doused pallets. Those with binoculars train them in the direction of the Sakai Islands. Finally, two faint lines of the twin hulls appear. Excited chatter ripples through the crowd. Drummers, many dressed in regalia, start up a steady beat. All along North Nordic Drive, onlookers wave from windows and doors and lawns. Minutes later, the Hokulea gently eases into the South Harbor. Tribal members line the dock, drumming softly as the crew ties up. They begin the formal protocol of asking each other who they are and where they're from. The next morning, crew member Tua Pittman explained that the greeting protocol is based on their culture of memorizing genealogies. You go back through the generations, somewhere along that line of genealogy, the people of the land can connect to a person and say, your family, welcome. And, uh, you know, it's for me, it's so fulfilling that we're still doing that now. The Hokulea was built in 1975. A rotating crew has sailed the vessel around the world several times since. It was built as a way to reclaim the traditional navigation of Hawaii. But crew member Lucy Lee says it also helped the people of Hawaii feel connected to their heritage after decades of cultural repression. One of the things that I think was so special about Hukulea was that she brought Hawaiians forward and gave them something to be proud of again. One of the tools of traditional navigation is the Hawaiian star compass. The compass is based on the star positions with the canoe at its center. The day after the arrival of the Hokulea, the crew has set up a demonstration of the Star Compass at Sandy Beach Park. Captain Mark Ellis is talking Karen McCullough through the process of celestial navigation. Now what's really cool about the North Star, it also is a latitude marker. So the further south you go, the North Star actually drops. Towards the horizon. Towards the horizon. Wow, and that helps you know you're okay Where, too. That helps you know how far north or south of the equator you are. Oh, wow. Tua Pittman is a navigator on this leg of the journey. He spent years learning the craft. He says that the early morning hours of navigation are the hardest for him. But the difficulty is part of the reward. You look across at the star compass on your canoe and you see the sunrise exactly where it's supposed to be. And that satisfaction of having withstood this whole 24-hour period of, of uh, staying awake and keeping the canoe on, on a good course, um, you know, it, it becomes very satisfying. Mark Ellis has been with the Hokulea since he was young. He agrees that life on the boat can be both extremely challenging and extremely rewarding. And I go home and I tell my wife, I'm not going to go out again on a deep one. Remember to tell me that. But my wife always forgets to tell me. <laughs> Ellis says he keeps going out to be part of something bigger than himself. The art of traditional navigation was almost lost, and he says he doesn't want that to happen again. 
I voyage for my grandchildren's grandchildren. I voyage for them so that they never have to learn about voyaging again from a book or from a video. I voyage so that navigation never goes extinct. Back at Sandy Beach Park, it's raining hard, but the crowd is growing. There's a feast of salmon and shrimp and fry bread, herring eggs and potato salad with kelp. Kids from Petersburg's Native Youth Olympics team demonstrate their abilities. The crew pulls the town folks into a circle and invites them to sing Aloha Hawaii. The song expresses love for Hawaii and is traditionally sung at gatherings. The last event of the day is a tour of the canoe. It's still raining, but a long line forms on the floats at the South Harbor. Crew member Rex Lokeni asked to hear each visiting child's name. I am forever grateful that you are bringing your kids with us. I'm going to be up front. I don't really care about old people. I care about them. The ones who are coming after us. They will be the architects of our society and where this world is heading in the near future. The next morning, the Hokulea headed south, bound for Wrangell under sunny skies. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. The Sitka Fine Arts Camp is suing three federal agencies for failing to grant a work visa for the organization's theater director. The camp isn't pulling any punches. The defendants named in the suit are Merrick Garland, Attorney General of the United States, along with the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and the Director of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS, and the director of the USCIS California Service Center. The camp alleges that its technical theater manager, who oversees the operation of the SICA Performing Arts Center, was wrongfully denied an H-1B visa, which covers specialty occupations that require advanced academic education and training to perform. According to the brief, which was filed July 7th in the U.S. District Court of Anchorage, the Sitka Fine Arts Camp had previously employed the individual under an Optional Practical Training Program, or OPT, which allows foreign students to work in their specialty for one year following graduation. The individual in question had recently earned a Bachelor's of Fine Art in Theater Performance from Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls, Texas. The Sitka Fine Arts Camp hoped to extend the individual's employment by filing a petition to classify him as an H-1B non-immigrant, which would have allowed him to keep working for another three to six years. The United States Customs and Immigration Service denied the application on June 16th, prompting the lawsuit, which is accompanied by 359 pages of exhibits attesting to the applicant's qualifications for H-1B status. The Sitka Fine Arts Camp argues that the agency's decision was arbitrary, thereby disrupting SFAC's operations and impeding it from accomplishing its important mission of providing the youth of isolated Alaskan communities with exposure and training in the arts. The camp is seeking a reversal of the H-1B denial and attorney's fees and costs. The Sitka Fine Arts Arts Camp is represented by the nation's law group in Anchorage, which did not return a call by press time. 
There's no regular state ferry service to Prince Rupert Island this summer, a town in British Columbia, around 90 nautical miles from Ketchikan. In the past, ferries ran so often, high schoolers could make a quick trip over to play basketball, old friends got to meet up without missing several days of work, and tourism was lively. Prince Rupert's mayor, Herb Pond, says 30 years ago, the ferry ran three or four times a week. But over the years, that's all changed. There's not the same level of service, and sometimes none at all. Pond visited Ketchikan during the 4th of July festivities and walked in the parade. He met a lot of residents who said they wanted the regular run back. Pond also spoke with Reagan Miller about the situation. He remembers when the service started to go downhill and how it changed the two towns' connection. With the absence of ferry service, I wasn't sure I was going to make it at all, but uh, was able to run up with uh, a volunteer search and rescue team that was going up. And um, and so I walked in the parade, uh, and uh, although hard, <laughs> hardly anyone would, would have known I was there, but it was it was great to connect with old friends and uh, make some new acquaintances and uh, and we're certainly going to plan on next year. And did you hear from any Ketchikan residents who wanted to talk to you about what the lack of ferry service has been like for them? Uh, what, what I heard from a number of people was if Alaska ferries won't come south to Rupert, uh, can you get BC ferries to come north to Ketchikan and um, I actually got on on a, a, a bus there was a, um, a reunion high school reunion and I think it was the class of 63 and so they they remember uh, very much what it was like to come back and forth uh, very freely and um, and and that group was dialed right in they, they were they remembered playing basketball. As a matter of fact, I got on the bus and said, I'm the mayor of Prince Rupert. And right away, one of them said, Rainmakers, which was the Rupert team. <laughs> so those connections uh, are, are are alive, right? People, these are, this is an ancient history. This is in very much in people's minds. People used to come down to play golf in Prince Rupert all the time. So it sounds like maybe there's a contingent of people who remember how easy it used to be and they kind of want that to come back. Yeah, yeah. I'd love it to come back. I mean, uh, it, it used to be a uh, it, it used to be a nice, easy getaway weekend to be able to board in Alaska. It was, it was just it, it was such good memories, right? My wife and I could get on an Alaska ferry. We'd, we'd go to the lounge, have an Alaskan amber, and sit and, and get off and wander the streets of Ketchikan and uh, spend their money there and, and, and easily come back home in time to, uh, you know, hardly miss any work at all. And, and that's, that's just a long lost memory now. And did you notice anything about Ketchikan or uh, also Prince Rupert since the ferry service started to go away? Have there been any effects on these towns? Yeah, there's no question. There's been a shift in tourism, without doubt. Uh, um, and but it, it's been a slow dwindling reality for you know two decades now. Uh, the the impact of that rubber tire traffic that would would do some sort of circle route that usually includes um, you know the Alaska highway up through the Yukon and and you know 
maybe into Skagway and down on the marine highway system. That uh, has dwindled and dwindled and dwindled over the years in Prince Rupert. It used to be a significant part of the tourism business in Prince Rupert. It used to be a big part of the hotel business in Prince Rupert. It really uh, had fallen off over the years. And do you think that there are ways to reconnect even if the ferry service doesn't fall into place? It's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, over the years, a number of people have tried small airlines and, and float plane service, and, um, and, uh, but, but shy of that robust and affordable uh, form of transportation, it's hard to imagine. That was Prince Rupert's Mayor Herb Pond talking with Reagan Miller. A full transcription of this interview is available at krbd.org. Alaska's labor shortage and declining population might have more to do with the smaller number of people coming into the state than the number of people leaving. That's according to longtime state economist Neil Fried during yesterday's discussion on talk of Alaska, Fried said Alaska has for years led the country with its population turnover. We, you know, we have the biggest turnover um, in our population every year. We're number one in the country. And that obviously lends itself to non-residency. The other big factor in non-residency is the seasonality. We are the most seasonal state in the country when it comes to employment. Fried is one of the longest-serving economists for the state of Alaska. He started the job nearly 45 years ago and is planning to retire this summer. He says because of the high population turnover in Alaska and the large number of seasonal workers, the state depends on new people moving in from out of state. Fried says that's not happening as much now, and it's a challenge for employers. One of the reasons is because the American economy has been so healthy for so long that Migration from state to state has declined to record lows in in the last five, six years in the country. And we're very dependent on migration and it's having a big impact on us. That creates a mixed bag for Alaskans. On one hand, the labor shortage is an opportunity for Alaskans seeking employment to earn more and change occupations. While the lack of available workers hamstrings employers struggling to operate with so many open positions. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.